Uh, you can turn in your Bibles tonight to Isaiah 52. Um, we're going to start a series where we're going through Isaiah 53. And yes, I know that 52 is before 53, but um, you'll see that the end of Isaiah 52 here goes uh, right along with Isaiah 53. And of course, these chapter headings, um, you know, were not original to the scripture, and so it's the same idea here. But Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15 will be where we uh, camp out tonight. Now, I want you guys to consider, uh, well, first of all, we're going through Isaiah 53 and 52 um, tonight, uh, and, and through this uh, holy season, as we celebrate the cross and, and resurrection uh, during Holy Week this week, uh, today being Palm Sunday, as a, as a way to, to meditate on the cross of Christ and and the great gift that God has given us in the manner in which he has given it to us by him coming, coming um, and suffering so that we might be made right with him. And what you'll see, or what, what, is, what you'll see is that Isaiah 53 is clearly about Christ on the cross. Unmistakably about Christ on the cross and even about the resurrection. And this was written, think about this, this was written... 700 years before the cross. 700 years before the cross. God basically, just like Babe Ruth, he says, I'm going to hit a home run, I'm going to hit it right there, and he does it. He accomplishes it. Nothing can stop him from doing whatever he pleases. Now, I went to um, UNC Chapel Hill. Some days I'm not sure whether to be Proud of that or not, um, I was a religious studies major there. I, it's one of the most liberal places on the planet. Um, and so I've been exposed to all the liberal mess. It, it was a challenge. It, it was difficult at the time, but it was very good for me to sharpen me and, and strengthen me and, and, and getting me to ask tough, tough questions and really search the scriptures for the answers because they weren't giving them to me. Um, but, uh, you know, liberal scholars will date Isaiah... 53 to the mid-500s B.C. And remember, we, when we talk about B.C., we, we count backwards, okay? So 700 B.C. being further away uh, than, than the 550s B.C. But e and the reason that they do that is because Isaiah's writing about both the Assyrian invasion and the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. Assyrian invasion happened in 701 B.C., and then... Uh, the Babylonian uh, invasion happens 100 years later in 597 B.C. Isaiah, is, is, he prophesies of both of those. So he, he predicts the Assyrian invasion, which happens in his lifetime, and then he predicts something that happens 100 years later, the Babylonian invasion. And liberal scholars who are working from a naturalistic perspective, they don't believe in a creator God, they don't believe in a God who, they don't believe in the supernatural. And so they say, well, how, you know, it must have been a second author who wrote this, and he wrote it much later. He wrote it during, after the Babylonian invasion had happened. And so, okay, even if you give them that, how do they account for this clear prophecy of Christ that comes five to 700 years later? As well, this chapter is known as the forbidden chapter uh, to many uh, in many Jewish circles, uh, is such a clear prophecy of Christ that it seems that it's been purposely arranged for, for Jews never to read it. They have something called the, the, the Haftarah, 
which is basically like a, like a liturgy, like a, a, a yearly reading. You know, a liturgy, you have this arrangement. You're going to read, you know, in January, the first Sunday in January, you're always reading this verse, and you just follow this calendar of what you're going to read, the scriptures you're going to read. Well, in the Haftarah, they, they never read Isaiah 53. And you can, you can YouTube this. You can YouTube the forbidden chapter. And you, 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 you can see an example of, um, of Christians sharing Isaiah 53 with devout Jews. Tim has a story of this. He's, he's told it to us before. You may remember. I'm sure he'll tell it to us again during this series. And, and these devout Jews who are waiting on the Messiah saying, it's Jesus in Isaiah. This is Isaiah, this prophet that we treasure, that we read all the time, and we never read this chapter. And so here we have this clear, all I have to say, this clear prophecy of Christ, 700 years in advance. Um, and I think that that should strengthen our faith, to see that we have a God who says, this is what I'm going to do, and he does it. And nothing can stop him from, from accomplishing his plan and fulfilling his promises. And so, uh, without further introduction, Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, referring to Christ, the Messiah. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Father, uh, we come to you tonight uh, just dependent on you for every good thing. I have no good apart from you. We have no good apart from you. You have accomplished our salvation. And uh, we stand here, we sit here tonight because of your sovereign goodness towards us. And so as you are sovereign over all history, even over our hearts, Holy Spirit, would you, would you just prepare a place for us to receive this implanted word with meekness, with humility, and may we rejoice over how great a God you are. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to make seven fairly quick uh, I know you guys don't believe when I say the word quick, but seven fairly quick observations on Christ's manner of glory, and then we're going to look at three reasons why we should be encouraged to press forward in this great commission that we've been given. First observation is about, the Christ, about Christ's manner of victory is that he achieves victory wisely. He achieves victory wisely. It says that, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And John Piper, preaching on this passage, he's, uh, he, he gets so excited, he says, what a weak word. As, as you work, look at this word wisely, it is very often translated as, my servant shall prosper. And you, as you see this context here, that's, that's what happens. My servant shall, shall act so wisely so as to prosper. He shall act so wisely so as to succeed. Wise so as to win in an unexpected way. Much like the Greeks in, in the story of, of uh, Homer's Odyssey, wisely defeating the Trojans uh, through an apparent defeat. You know the story that they, they hid themselves in this, this large Trojan horse, which was supposed to be an, an offering to the, to the Trojan god, and so they, it seems like they're conceding victory, and they, and they um, 
they give this, this large uh, horse on wheels, um, and, uh, and it looks like a defeat. But what happens but, but that the Greeks break out of there and they, uh, they take out the Trojans when they, when they least expect it. Same manner of victory for Christ. He, he achieves victory wisely through an apparent defeat. Because of his wisdom, he achieves victory for us. Second observation, he achieves victory in a surprising way. He achieves victory in a surprising way. Now, it was prophesied that the Messiah must suffer. But did anyone ever expect that our holy God would be born as a baby, that he would take on the... Uh, the take on human flesh and be raised up in families like us, that he would get up and go to work every day as a carpenter uh, like we get up and go to work, most of us. And uh, I know some of y'all are still in school, okay? It's, time's coming, okay? Um, but he, he would hurt and he would bleed and he would grieve like us. And that then he would suffer and die for our sins. That having lived a blameless life, he did not deserve to die, but he died for us so that we could be counted as sons and daughters of God. And you see this language of surprise here, that they were astonished at him, and that kings shall shut their mouth over him, that, that, um, that, that the message, the gospel will be told to people and, and that they've never heard, that they never would have expected. Third observation, he achieves victory through a shockingly ugly apparent defeat. Achieves victory through a shockingly ugly apparent defeat. Now, Scripture does not give a lot of graphic details on Jesus' flogging or the crucifixion and what that was like. It simply says they flogged him. Um, he was crucified. But it does tell us that it was ugly. It says here in, in, in verse 14, it says they were astonished at him, that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of, uh, of mankind. The way, in other words, as Alec Mortar puts it, the thought is that his suffering left him more damaged than any other ever had been, and indeed prompted the question whether what remained of him could even be human. When I was um, at UNC, one of my um, New Testament professors, Bart Ehrman, he, he was not a believer, um, still isn't, as far as I'm aware. But he, the, passion, the movie The Passion of the Christ had come out at that time, and, and so he was given this lecture on, on the historicity of it, whether it was historically accurate or not. And, and he, I remember him saying then, is that, you know, was Jesus beaten that badly? And, and he said, you know, the fact that Jesus died within a matter of hours, yes, more than likely that would explain why he died so quickly. Because a lot of times they would be crucified and they'd hang there for days. And they'd keep sliding down and trying to pull themselves up, and eventually they would suffocate. But Jesus died within a matter of hours. And so, yes, he, he very possibly was beaten as bad as what you see in, in that film. Uh, J. Vernon McGee says, he, he postulates that the wrath of God falling down on Jesus as it went dark from noon to 3 o'clock, that as the, as the light returned, that people were appalled at what they saw. It's the wrath of God, the judgment of God was poured out on Jesus, and what remained of him scarcely looked human. 
And this looked like a defeat, an ugly defeat. However, he achieves victory and glory in proportion to his shame. As many as were astonished and shocked and stunned at how ugly his defeat was, so shall many marvel and be stunned by and exult over how great his victory is. This king shall shut their mouths over it. And along with that, Jesus achieves victory over the entire world. He achieves victory over the entire world. Uh, verse 15, it says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. And that's a, um, another difficult word that you could also translate as, So shall he startle many nations. And so which is it? Is, is it? Does he sprinkle many nations or does he startle many nations? And I think as, as you look at the context... Could very well be both. And, as, and I think Isaiah is being intentional here, choosing a word that, that works for both. Because we are startled over the manner in which he saves us, while sprinkling is the manner in which he saves us. What the sprinkling refers to is, you know, just as Moses, when, when they were inaugurating the Old Covenant in Exodus 24, he sacrificed um, young, all these young bulls were sacrificed to the Lord. And they took the blood of these young bulls and they, and they poured them into a bowl. And then what Moses did is he, he dipped his fingers in there and he sprinkled blood on the people. And this is him making a covenant. Sorry to be getting your clothes dirty. But, um, but that's what he did is he sprinkled blood on them. And in the same way, Jesus, he said, as he took the cup, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. And he's, he sprinkles us. He covers us in his blood. And we know that the life is in the blood. That's why they couldn't eat medium rare steaks back then. Because they couldn't eat anything in which the blood was still in the animal. Because the life is in the blood. The life of that animal is in the blood. And so as the blood of Jesus is sprinkled over us and sprinkled over many nations, God regards us according to Jesus' blood, which means he regards us according to Jesus' life, to his, according to his record of obedience and righteousness, and he credits us with that righteousness. And, it, it, and when I say here that he achieves that victory over the entire world, I don't mean that, he will, that, he will, that every person will come to know the Lord, but every nation will come to know the Lord. Every people group will bow at his feet. This salvation is too good to contain. It is too good to contain. It's too good to contain only with the Jews. Too good to contain only with us Americans. No, Jesus is worthy to be worshipped by all nations. And so shall he sprinkle many nations. And all nations, every tongue, nation, tribe, people group will be gathered around the throne of God on the last day, worshipping him for his great salvation. Six observation. He achieves victory in a way that shocks and humbles the most powerful of people. Victory in a way that shocks and humbles the most powerful of people. Who are kings here? It says, as it says, kings shall shut their mouths. Who are kings but, but the most powerful people? And in spite of their power, they shall be humbled, shocked, have nothing to say when they realize their guilt before the Lord, when they, when they realize that they are wrong. 
when they realize that they need a Savior and that the Savior would come in such a way as to give so great a salvation. You guys know that, that um, very satisfying feeling of when you're in an argument trying to help someone to see the truth uh, and, and, and they realize they're wrong and they just have nothing further to say? Jake, is, Jake seems to really enjoy that. Um, but uh, if you don't know that feeling, you can sign up for the tactics class. We're going to learn how to, yes, that's my last commercial, uh, but, you know, learning how to do pe- help people to see the truth in that way. Um, not trying to slam them, but just trying to help them see. But it's a very satisfying feeling, is it not, Jake? Okay, right. All right, maybe if you don't know that feeling and you haven't taken the tactics class yet, what? She's not in the room. That was... Okay, so if you don't know that feeling of the other person not having anything to say, you at least know that feeling of you have nothing further to say because you realize that, that you are wrong. It's, that's what he's talking about here. Kings shall shut their mouths and have nothing further to say. And the gospel tells us that either we will shut our mouths in humility or we will shut our mouths in humiliation on the last day. As uh, Philippians 2.10 and 11 tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. We can choose for that to be a, a kneeling in gladness now or it will be a, a kneeling in regret later. Last observation. He achieves victory with us. Achieves victory with us. Uh, look at verse 15. It says, For that which has not been told them, the nations, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. How is it that all nations are going to see and hear of this surprising servant, except through us, except through our obedience, our obedience to go, our obedience to support those who are going. Paul, he, he takes this verse and he quotes it in, in Romans 15. I got it up on the, on the screen here for you. As Paul is speaking of his ambition to preach Christ where Christ has not been named, he he cites this verse as his confidence that they will hear and that they will believe. This word, this written word from Isaiah 52, it burned in Paul. It burned in him. He believed God for it. He worshipped God over it. He stepped out in faith He preached to those who had never heard, and he believed that some would understand because God said some would understand. And so should this word burn in us and propel us forward, like burning in us like a locomotive, fueling us forward in confidence. I will step out in faith, and I will share Christ with people who have rejected God because I believe some will repent and receive God's mercy because God said it. So shall we cling to the promises of God. As you were singing, Andrew, about how 
great his, his grace is to us. It is grace is like an ocean. Have you ever considered that not only has he given us his grace to forgive us and to make us sons and daughters, but he gives daily grace every day to obey and to do great things for the Lord like this. It's just like continual manna on the ground, day after day, moment after moment. How, if his grace is an ocean, we are, man, it's being rained down upon us every day. And so I want to close with three reasons to take heart and press forward as we finish the Great Commission. Man, I look forward to the finishing. For first reason is that he still acts wisely. He still acts wisely. If you are reading the news more than scripture, it's a pretty easy bet that you are depressed, <laughs> that you stay discouraged. You know, this summer, uh, that was me, and I, I, was, I was sitting out here on the, on the front porch of the parsonage uh, and just encouraged in reading Matthew 13, the parable um, of the kingdom of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And you guys know the story. I'll remind you if, if, uh, to refresh your memory if you don't, or if you don't know it. But basically Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who, who plants seeds of wheat. And in the middle of the night, his enemy comes and plants tares, which are weeds. So these weeds that grow up and they look very similar to wheat, except they're poisonous. <laughs> okay? And the servants... Um, asked this, this man who owned the field, he said, what should we do? Should we go pluck up all the weeds? And he's like, no, if you do that, then you'll destroy the crop too. Wait until the harvest, and then the Lord of the harvest will come, and he'll, take, he'll sort out the wheat and the tares, and he'll take the tares, and he'll bind them up and, and burn them, and they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the parable referring to hell. But what I realized as I, as I read that parable is that the kingdom of Christ is growing at the same time that evil is growing. And as, it, you know, as you read the news, you see the kingdom of evil is growing in our world, is it not? There are some things to be troubled about and grieved about. But the kingdom of God is advancing at the same time. And those, the ugly things in the news, the ugly things about the kingdom of evil are more noticeable. And something interesting I learned is that it tears Stand taller than the wheat, because the wheat, as it matures, it humbly bows down. Isn't there a picture in that? And so the tares are more noticeable, but, but the kingdom of God is alive and well, and it is very much bearing fruit and increasing, to quote Colossians. We, we have told you stories of how it is bearing fruit and increasing in India. It is bearing fruit and increasing in China. It is bearing fruit and increasing in, in Iran um, as you know, just another wise way that God is working. They, they set up uh, basically uh, Sharia law. We're going to live by the Muslim Quran, and people are just, they've seen it doesn't work, and they're disillusioned with it, and people are coming to Christ in, in Iran. The kingdom of God may be in decline in the West, but it is growing in Africa. It is growing in South America, and that's, that's easily accounted for. It's well reported. And I, um, we're almost done, buddy. <laughs> um, you know, you guys know I, I was, um, Christine and I both spent a, a year in China and so familiar with their, with their history and uh, the story of, of China 
is just a, um, just a, a marvelous uh, picture uh, of God's wise acting in the world. And there were Western missionaries who were there, pretty prominent Western missionary presence. Lottie Moon was one of them. Um, uh, we, know Baptist, we Baptists know about Lottie Moon, right? But, um, but anyway, there was, there was um, prominent missionary uh, presence, Western missionary presence, and then the communist revolution came about. Kicked all the Western missionaries out. And they were so discouraged. They were disheartened. They, they wrote to one another of how all of our work has been in vain. That the church, church in China has just been crushed, been destroyed. And we're just basically going to have to start all over if ever this communism ends. Well, as things started to open back up some decades ago, uh, what they call the bamboo curtain being pulled back, they saw that the church in China had been multiplied by the millions. And not only that, but it had been purified, strengthened. This was a people who were now committed fervently to prayer, committed to the word of God, to committed to, with this, this missionary zeal. They had this zeal to take uh, the gospel to the Middle East and what they call the, the back to Jerusalem movement. Let's, let's, let's get the gospel all the way back to, to Jerusalem. Let's reach the Muslims. And what's more, roads had been constructed that made missionary travel easier. And uh, previously, they was a very diverse nation, all these different languages. Mao Zedong, um, the communist leader, had established one national language that everyone had to learn. Doesn't that make communication of the gospel easier? How wise, how great is our God? What's he doing right now? We don't even know. I mean, but one day we're going to see and we're going to marvel over it. Second reason uh, to take heart is great shall his promised victory be. Yes, I know. Could you not come up with a stronger word than great? <laughs> but great, great shall his victory be. He shall be exalted. And the promise is that he will win all nations to himself. We see that in Revelation 7, 9, that every, you know, again, that every people, uh, people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language will be gathered around the throne saying, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And we obey trusting in that promise. Final reason is that for all nations shall know that Jesus is Lord. For all nations shall know that Jesus is Lord. This is a specific promise here. Christina, how many nations shall know that Jesus is Lord? How would, how would Brett say it? All of them. All of them. Uh, Brett's not in here, so it's extra fun to pick on. Oh, okay, there you are. Brett, how many nations will know that Jesus is Lord? All of them. All of them. It's not all of them. It's all of them. Amen? He will win victory over us all. That's another Brett word. Christina laughed. Yes. Brad, I love you, man. It's great. But I, he will win. All of them. All of them will come to Jesus. And it's, I mean, it's just good. Okay, so take heart. Press forward. Believe God for his promises. Do you, do you guys realize, as we're here in um, Isaiah 52, that we stand in the middle of the fulfillment of this prophecy? This, was, this prophecy was given 700 years before Christ died on the cross. That part has been accomplished. Okay? 
That's already been accomplished. But what has not yet been accomplished? All of the nations coming to know the Lord. And so we stand in, this, in the middle of this prophecy. But let me ask you this. If our God would predict something 700 years in advance and then align history to bring it to pass, will he not do great things to bring this to pass also? Will he not do great things to bring the rest of this prophecy to pass also? And so as the missionary William Carey exhorted his people, we should, we expecting God to do great things, should attempt great things for God. Expecting God to do great things to accomplish this near impossible mission. Expecting God to do that, to make it happen. We attempt great things for God. And so in response, will you play your faithful part? Will you play your faithful part? Stepping out in obedience, taking the, the Lord at his word, trusting him to accomplish that which he has said he will accomplish. We're members of the body of Christ, as, as Paul said, he said, I, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God is going to accomplish this mission. And he has given each of us the privilege of playing a role in that together. As a word of invitation, if you have, if you're one of those who has never heard or understood this surprising servant before, what would hold you back from receiving him with gladness today. You can go to him just as simply and honestly as you can manage just in, in prayer before him. And he, is, he was pleased to be crushed for us, for our sin, so that we could be counted righteous and be called sons of God. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That's not the part I wanted to quote. Anyway... The part where he was marred so that many sons would be brought to glory. Yeah, that part. Okay. Let's pray. God, how good, how great you are. <laughs> what overwhelming grace that you give to us. Lord, meet us where we're at. Help us in our unbelief. God, may it is written, burn in our hearts, just as it did with Paul. And would you propel us forward to accomplish great things for your glory. All glory and praise and honor to you, for you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.